Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast, the podcast where we work hard towards ascension so you don't have to. My name is Adam Simpson, and I'm joined today by Terry Robinson. How are you doing, Terry? I'm doing great. What most people don't understand is to do this intro, Adam and I have to run through it like two or three dozen times. It's like us like running a half marathon before recording. <laughs> well, in uh, current events, uh, I heard that you, Terry, have an, a big current event coming up. I would love to hear about it. Well, there are two. One, I have foot surgery in two days. That's going to be fine. Oh, the important part... That's new to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty jazzed about it because I apparently broke my foot at some point and didn't really notice it until I went to a podiatrist and she looked at my foot and she said, Mr. Robinson, your foot is mostly inflammation and scar tissue. We should do something about that. So they're going to cut a hole in the side um, and a whole bunch of dwarves are going to go in and remove all that scar tissue, and I'm going to have my my foot up for, for a couple of days, so I'm pretty jazzed for that. In other news, I will be going to Gen Con this year. I thought it was a progenitor event, and it was short for, like, the genetics conference, but it's not. Um, <laughs> it is a four- to five-day event that is held in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the United States each year. This year, it's going to be, I think, uh, what, August 1st through 4th. I will be there with my recording equipment. If you're going to be there... I'm going to be the pudgy guy with a Mage the Podcast t-shirt on it. And um, I've been thinking over some designs on what I want the shirts to say. And uh, I'd like to pass a few by you, if that's okay, Adam. Yeah, let's hear it. The The first one is uh, Truth Beyond Paradox. Safe, comfortable. We all understand it. Uh, I like it. Number two would be What Would Porthos Do? WWPD, which which no one will get, and the, the the third one I'm thinking of that best summarizes mages a system would be I don't think you're using the right spheres for that rote, and I feel like that will be the universal way of summoning. Yeah, all... most people are like whatever. The mage fans are like I'm gonna talk to that guy. Yeah, <laughs> someone on the on on the Facebook group proposed that I should have a shirt that says No, 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 that fireball was totally coincidental. And I, I like that. <laughs> I like that as a shirt idea. But if you see a guy with a Mage the Ascension shirt, it's probably me. I even went onto the Redbubble store for Mage. Like, there's a Mage the Ascension Onyx Path Redbubble shirt, uh, shirt store where you can get custom shirts of whatever size and material and color and design you kind of want. And I was super jazzed because it had a bunch of the M20 designs on it. And I'm like, holy bejesus. I love Christopher Shy's Ascend artwork, which is just this gray background with this woman with a bob cut floating in the air slightly, and it just says Ascend, or at least that's just the title of it. I'm like, oh man, I can finally get a shirt of this awkward gray design, and it's going to be great. And it's literally the only M20 key art piece that they do not have in the store. And further in terms of things that are odd, there are two designs that are marked as mature content. And they're both technocratic convention shirts. It's the one that says, this scientist is doing his job. Will you enlist? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. why is that marked as mature content? I, I think Redbubble is either run by the Nafandi or maybe by the traditions. I'm not entirely sure. But like all, <laughs> almost all the tech, the only two designs that are marked as mature content are the are the technocratic ones. And some of the other contents, you like full on see someone's boob. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure why like an Android has been marked as adult content, but not like this 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 boob but uh. <laughs> i can just imagine the guys going ha, 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 boob they're like oh well that's not very mature so that's cool yeah 
<laughs> but, oh, yeah. uh, hey, we wish you well with your surgery. And as for Gen Con, I've been hearing about it since I was a youngster in like uh, the mid-80s. And so I've never had a chance to go, but uh, I would certainly like to hear your full report when you get back because that would be a great opportunity to uh, uh, rub elbows with uh, other World of Darkness fans and uh, fans of other tabletop games, too. Yeah, I will literally have my recording equipment on me. If you see me or you think it's me, preferably if it's not me, that would be hilarious. If people are like, oh my God, it's Terry from Mage of the Podcast. That's very clearly a guy wearing like my paladin has charisma 19 as a t-shirt or something like that. But There is going to be some grouchy guy at that con- at that convention wearing a mage t-shirt. And it's like by the third day, all you have to do <laughs> is walk up to him and he'll say, I'm not Terry. <laughs> everything. He'll have a shirt that says that. He's like every, and his shirt will say everything after first edition was crap. Or alternatively, what would Anders Sonberg do? Um, <laughs> but if you have thoughts about mechanics from other games that you would like to jam into Mage, or antagonists from other systems to be ported in, or just thoughts on it, or if you're a writer or a professional in the Mage the Ascension universe, or you work for Onyx Path, by all means, I will be collecting short snippets of interview that hopefully I can weave together into an episode after the fact. Or alternatively, we can just talk about Mage and we can look at each other and go, Mage, and just give each other the thumbs up and continue walking. Up to you, but by all means, if you see me, come say hello. That sounds great. Well, getting back to today's topic, we are continuing the Tomes of Magic series. And uh, in our last uh, episode that aired, we uh, took a break to talk about the Euthanatos. I'm, I'm trying to get the, the Greek pronunciation of that in my mind. It's, it's taken me a minute there. That was uh, an episode out of sequence because we had a uh, Twitter poll where people said they really wanted to hear about that group. So today we're back on to the uh, regular um, original release schedule. And that brings us to the first tradition book for the Rubena. And for me, this was was rather interesting because the verbena, as uh, Brogado has said in a couple of interviews, is one of the few traditions that really did not change between editions. Now, additional ideas and inspirations were added, and that was always fun to see. But uh, the, the core concept of what this group is about and, and you know how, how they're made up and what they basically think, it really did not change between editions. They were based on everyone's uh, common understanding of the Western world's past with druidic elements, uh, Wiccan elements. Uh, what people may or may not call a witch. And these days that term can be uh, sensitive for some people, but for others, not so much. And uh, so it was uh, it was basically a slam dunk when writing the first edition of Mage to say, well, yeah, we, we should have a group like the Verbena. And um, as the editions have gone by, that uh, idea has held true. Uh, if you talk to a Mage fan about Verbena, you never have to stop and say, wait a minute, let's, let's make sure which uh, edition we're talking about. The core does seem largely unchanged. I, I am fond of noting that in first edition, traditions were often geographic or ethnically based, where this group in this area does this magic with this method. And in second edition, they said, well, these practices are somewhat universal, and there tended to be groups that practice this form of magic or this tradition all over the globe. So you went from one group in one area to many groups in one area. And then finally, in revised through M20, you had the idea that each tradition had a core concept or belief, and anyone that fed into that core concept and belief would fall into that tradition. The Verbena has been remarkably consistent in that regard. Their magic is heavily focused on cycles and heavily focused on the idea of sacrifice and exchange, that if you want to do great change in the world, it's going to cost you. And while everyone kind of understands that, the Verbena magic actually leans on that concept, whereas opposed to it being a figurative sacrifice, it's like, no, 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 we're taking some blood to make this work. I would like to uh, kick this episode off with uh, just a brief discussion of the sections of the book, uh, how it's laid out from beginning to end. And Terry, I think you're well qualified. 
I guess my first little thing is I got this book, I think when I was in eighth or ninth grade, and I got it as part of Blood and Dreams, the Traditions Gathered Volume 2. And I cracked it open. I was reading the opening fiction. And I think it was literally the first time I had encountered a character with same-sex attraction in a book. And I was reading it on the bus, and I was reading this this made supplement, this, this fat 200-page compendium. And I remember thinking, oh no, if people see me reading a book about a gay character, they'll think I'm a dork because gay people are dorks and I don't want to be a dork. Now, mind you, I am literally reading an RPG supplement on a bus. And my biggest concern is that someone will look over my shoulder and see that there's a bard in here that also likes men and that that will reflect poorly on me. And not the fact that while all of my friends are learning how to date or figuring out who they're taking to prom, I'm reading an RPG supplement. That may explain why I didn't really figure out how dating worked until my late 20s. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I was a similar sort of person at the same age, so don't feel bad about that. Yeah, it is funny how when we're younger, we, we'll we'll take a certain thing and, and just fixate on it and go, oh my gosh, what do people find out? And then it's like just a handful of years later, it's like, what? This is no thing. And at the same time, like as time goes forward and we become more accepting of the likes and preferences of other people, like I think back to what if more people had known and I had secretly found that other person who super thought that that was okay and was also super into tabletop role-playing games. Like I just <laughs> I, I just think of like how, how we could have rerun the, the clock. But but we don't get to short of having access to time five. But yeah, the, the, was that uh, older English writer who said it is not for men to know what might have been? Yep. <laughs> into the show notes. But this book is broken up into a bunch of sections. And the recurring theme of the book is the idea of working off of cycles. So each of the, the chapters is named after some day of observation that occurs in the calendar that the verbena use. So you have the prelude where we introduce all of our characters, and that's referred to as Between the Worlds, and that's Sahwe Eve or however S-A-M-H-A-I-N-E is pronounced and then going on we have an introduction which is the winter solstice and then we get history which is candlemas and we get a a a history of, of this tradition and then it goes into the standard politics external relations and character templates section the thing that is interesting about this book is as opposed to the other tradition books where we get a single apprentice or maybe two apprentices stories to follow here we get five And this is the first time where the book says, hey, we have been giving you a generic every person character to follow through your your Nick Carraway, as it were, from The Great Gatsby, just this generic person that witnesses history. But here we get five very distinct, very flavorful, but tough for me to track because I'm really bad at following dialogue and remembering names, characters. And each of those characters has their own arc where they have some sort of vision that they have or some sort of connection to maybe past experience or the aspect of the Verbena tradition that their character is kind of falling into. I thought that was interesting. If that mechanism falls flat for you, this book is going to be, this book could have been 20 pages instead of 65, but that is kind of the frame that we use as opposed to the other books. We talked about in the Euthanatos. As an aside, I've started now saying Euthanato, 
Kratos. And one of the, oh no! <laughs> and one of my players at the table is like, "He got you." As my players listen to my, or at least one of my players listens to my podcast. I think it says something about how cool we are as a podcast that I literally have a Mage Chronicle, and only one of my players listens. They're like, "No, we get enough Terry. We don't need more of him." Um, <laughs> and the the section specifically, we get a history chapter where. Of course, they say they're the oldest tradition. Everyone kind of wants to be the oldest tradition. But here we got we got some we got the goods. They split from the dream speakers at a time when the difference between the spirit world and the mundane mudball kind of became more pronounced. But more importantly, I thought they also give us an idea of kind of the prehistory that before humanity, you had the old ones, which existed in some unsullen form, and they produced the pure ones. And the pure ones gave the gift of blood and flesh and guided humans, where when I hear that, I think psychopomp but it's hard for me not to project forward what I know later in the line. And these are the very primordial verbena. The difference between the dream speaker and their verbena was kind of unimportant before the, the sundering. We we are introduced to the Aeduna. I have no idea how that is pronounced. We get our first bard fight where they talk about how the ancient verbena sometimes would settle wars by just having the bards go up and, and storytell fight at one another. The Aeduna merge with the Wick to form the Wicke. Again, no idea how to pronounce that. And then they talk about the coming of the burning times. They are angry at the hermetics for their excess, which allows the order of reason to come about. And also for the start of the inquisition where mortals say, Hey, this magic stuff keeps killing people and making stuff complicated. So we're going to use the power of the fact that there's a lot of us to destroy everything that you've built. And at one point the verbena are reduced to about five covens and they start having to deal with the fact that, Hey, maybe we can't do this as a familial lineage anymore. There just aren't enough of us. And that's the history section. It very quickly kind of moves from about the 1450s, the end of Sorcerer's Crusade to the present day, there's not a huge amount of infill. They don't get a, a large destruction a discussion, for instance, of how the Verbena behaved during World War II. And then we move into the next section where they talk about politics, which following the first edition method, they have a group for each avatar type. You have the gardeners of the tree, which are pattern. They protect the mythic threads, the twisters of fate, which are more primordial, the moon seekers, which are questing. And the, I guess it's the life weavers is the, the last one they introduce. They go over the politics of it. We get some more information about the rituals that they use. There's weird deer people that appear. I didn't quite follow that, but suddenly there are people with antlers and that's an important thing somehow. That that I, that section kind of lost on me. And then they go through external relationships, which is interesting because it is a relatively positive look at their other traditions. So game Mage at its core is partially a game about hope. So they mention, for instance, the Celestial Chorus that they kind of hate because of the Inquisition and the Burning Times. But at the same time, they point out that they share a fair amount in common. They think that we all used to be part of or were endowed by a singular unitary entity that brought magic to the world. And there's some commonality there. They also mention Lilith as the first mage, which I think is the first time that's brought up as a canonical idea when they go through the character section. And then we get the character templates, which are the outlines of each of the characters we have received so far in the story. So in the other books where you have the different templates that are usually based maybe one different one for each avatar type or each avatar essence. Here we get one for each of the 
narrative characters we had been following along. We get our druid, we get our witch, we get our eco-terrorist, who is also the druid character. We get the bard, we get the uh, First Nations member who's acting as a more shamanic role. And the key complaint I have about this section is none of the characters start with stone lore, which, as we established in our Book of Shadows episode, most underrated power and mage. <laughs> But but th those are the sections. And did did anything particular stand out for you in that listing? No, I, I think you covered it uh, pretty well. I remember thinking um, uh, both times I read this book that uh, when I was reading the uh, introduction, I was a, a bit surprised that instead of one signature character, they had you know a number of them. And I was thinking, yeah, if you're going to do in character fiction, th this is a great way to do it. I, I like. I actually like this. It's like we've got different apprentices coming into the tradition. They have different point of views, and I like that. And then as I read the book, you know, further into the book, it's like, oh, well, you know, this narrative framing technique, they, they really stick with it chapter after chapter. And that, I'm, I'm less a fan of that, although I've talked to many people who really love it, so I, I'm not, it's not like I'm going to bag on it. But it, it was less my favorite thing. And, and as we said in the episode about the euthanatos, it can become a technique where the author's biases uh, can be leaned on a little more heavily, and the readers, especially younger readers, have a harder time even noticing that the biases are there. And so yeah, I, I kind of like to see more of an omnipresent narrator for, for later chapters, but perhaps that's just my own preferences. So yeah, uh, uh, I thought it was it was pretty well done. This this was a, a fairly solid book, as tradition books go. It, it's not one of my favorites. I think it did its job pretty well and it introduced some interesting ideas. Uh, it would have been nice to to see a little more surprises, uh, something new, something more more creative put in. But uh, it it did its job well, so I, I really shouldn't criticize it too much. I, I give it a thumbs up rather than a thumbs down. If if uh, if anyone's uh, wondering, like I'm dissatisfied with it, I'm really not. As more and more time goes on, I am fine with the in-character narrative sections because if I'm a new player, my default is to kind of start with the stereotype and then figure out where it is a generalization. It's one of those cases where the difference between a stereotype and a generalization is a generalization is usually somewhat true. So you start with what someone in that group already thinks, and that gives you a pretty firm starting point. I, I feel like the best way to grok a character or a tradition is always to flip over all the other books and to say, oh, what is everyone else's stereotype about them? And that kind of gives you an idea of what everyone else thinks about them. And then you flip through that group's book and you get what they think of everyone else. And I kind of feel between those two, that gives you an idea. Like when we say the biases of the author, I am hesitant to impugn thoughts of the writers as being different than necessarily the thoughts of the characters or the thoughts of the characters being motivated by the thoughts of the author, especially when it's in character fiction. That's me. Obviously, the verbena compared to other traditions are going to have a distinct agenda. They're going to have a worldview or a way that they think that the world should unfold. And I feel like it is a hard leap to go from, oh, the characters say this to, oh, the authors say that. Over the course of many books, I feel that we can see that start to come out. But I feel as if it's we are still young enough in the series that if there is something there, it's I don't feel as if it's too forward, especially compared to maybe some of the more obvious introductions of author preference that occurred in the M20 era. I, I realize that it may be my mindset that I have when I approach these books, but um, my mindset is is basically I'm really anxious to get my hands on this book because it focuses on this one faction or this one part of the, the game world, and I'm really looking forward to a high-level overview. You know, the author's talking to me saying, look, let's just lay this all out. And uh, in later on, when 
I'm just picking up the book for reference as a storyteller. It's like, look, there's that section on, on this one little thing. I've got to find that. When you have a lot of in-character fiction, it's so hard to find that information. But when it's more the omnipresent narrator uh, style of writing, there's little subheadings and stuff. And so you can pick out what you want so easily for reference later on. And so as a storyteller who's running games for people, it'll be like two or three years after I read the book, I grab it off the shelf real quick. It's like, okay, let me find that. And in the in-character books, it's like, oh gosh, I got to dig for this. So maybe that's that's just my own uh, uh, point of view on that one. Yeah, I certainly agree with that in a lot of cases. It seems like the stuff that is supposed to be player-facing tends to have a lot more in-world fiction than the stuff that is storyteller-facing, where we get more of that omnipresent narrator stuff. I do like some of the books, and it occurs, I think, a little more often in other lines, where you will have the in-character section, which is very flavorful and transmits the mood very well. And at the end of that chapter, we'll have the two pages for the storyteller, which tells you the straight dish, what's actually going on, any of the system stuff that you need. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, book of Worlds comes to mind as a book that very much does that division, where you have in-character stuff, and then it kind of turns into an exposition dump. And then at the back, you have the the super crunchy sections of, oh, wait, what, what rote do I actually use? Do I actually use here? But I, I largely agree with your your conclusion that this is a solid book. I really think it is. The, the first thing that struck me, especially compared to the previous books, was the art was amazing. I had forgotten how good it was, how much it referenced what was happening in the text, as opposed to some other mage books, where it seemed like an utter non sequitur, where you have a section of internal politics for the Euthanatos book, and it shows a guy like being dissected alive on a table. I'm like, sure, I can take that as a metaphor, but it's probably not supposed to be directly tied to the politics section. But here yeah. you had a good visualizations for the character. I thought the art itself was quite good. It had kind of this smooth sheen 90 sleekness to it, which is kind of weird for a life-based group, but eh. I'm not going to complain. So the, the art stood out to me. I very much like the multiplicity of character templates. I like that there were there were a bunch of options there. I, I really liked the history that they laid out. I feel like it was it did a good job of laying out kind of the mythological time. So you have two timelines that most traditions have. One is that they have some sort of prehistory timeline where they say, this is what we think the primordial world was like. This is what we think very early humans were like. And then sometime around ancient Egypt, it goes into normal history where you have events and dates and we can tie them to things that actually happened. I very much like when we get that prehistory because I feel like it gives us a lot of information on what the tradition thinks at heart and how they think the world has actually evolved. And I found it interesting to read through knowing enough about the cosmology of the world of darkness at this point to be like, oh, this is what they thought the, the differentiation between the Wick and the old ones and early humans were. And I, I found that to be, to be useful and informative. But again, no mention of stone lore. I thought they were leaving a lot of money on the table there. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. I, I agree with your statement on that one. Uh, one of the strengths of the book was uh, you expect a basic tradition book or even a convention book to say, ah, we're the oldest uh, you know, faction of mages and, and they – Sometimes they offer an explanation, sometimes they don't, and you kind of expect to see that. And with uh, Verbena and Dream Speakers, you expect to be, you know, I expect a little something to back this claim up because I, I also share this expectation that they're one of the older traditions. And with Verbena, they did a good job with that. They actually put a little thought into it. They said, look, uh, not only do we make this claim, but here's how we think the world started and how magic started and how we started filtering into human society. And you're reading, it's like, oh, this is, this is actually kind of interesting. There's some, some fun uh, 
uh, names I can use as a storyteller in, uh, you know, seekings or flashbacks or whatever with my players. And it makes sense that the verbena would think this. And there's actually a little, you know, something to hang on that hook of uh, we were the first. And so it, it was good to see that. It's nice that they backed it up well. I also like that they did give a calendar that they said, this is our organization. We have this cycle that most of our groups generally observe. And I feel like to a storyteller and a player, that gives you much more framework than a lot of the other traditions get. So Tradition Book Virtual Adept mentioned that they have their get together. Eventually we'll get the Jambos of the Cultist of Ecstasy. I think that's COE. And in the Euthanatos, they make mention that subgroups have a calling and sometimes Senex or someone or the Rinpoche will have a call together. But here, there's very much a focus on these are the rites and rituals that we generally do as a group. If nothing else, we use them as an organizational principle. And I thought that was super useful as as a framework. And looking back at the other traditions, I kind of wish they had that too, that there was a, a logical cycle to it where they say, okay, at this festival, this is when we talk about our new members. At this festival, this is when we test them. At this festival, this is when we introduce them into the group as a whole. Really, my only discontent is it adds a lot more organization to the verbena than I think I initially expected, which is fine. You could argue that, oh no, they would never be this, this unified or this connected as a group or you could say no 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 it makes sense that a group that had been through the burning times would be super good at maintaining contact with one another take it as you will the the weird thing for me and this was kind of a narrative contrivance is that in a one-year cycle we get five new apprentices which to me is a huge amount of new mages um, they also continued with the narrative of choosing who awakens or having some sort of indoctrination thing where somehow the people present can choose whether or not someone is awakened or not, which I think is kind of messy. And that may just be a case of they think they have a choice in it, but at the end of the day, they actually don't. And it's whether or not their their avatar decides to awaken or something. And again, that's fine. It's it's If you're going to have five characters carried through, it would be super annoying. At the end, it'd be like, they had five characters go through apprenticeship. Only the weird shapeshifter woman with a hump was actually awakened or something like that. A couple of things there that uh, I'd like to comment on. First off, I, I do have a little bit of a, a different um, uh, view on uh, the inclusion of the uh, seasonal events, you know, the calendar events. Um, I think it, it does not speak to how organized or disorganized the group is, although I, I could certainly see taking that point of view. But uh, for me, I thought that it belonged, and it, it was well done. They have the seasonal events from Imbolc through Vernal Equinox, Beltane, Summer Solstice, Lamas, also called Lunacid, uh, Autumnal Equinox, and then the one that I can't pronounce, Samane. I'm probably going to get some flack for mispronouncing that, but uh, it's October 31st, I I'm, I'm going to say Sam Ain, and, and I'm, I apologize to my more educated listeners. And uh, finally, we round out the calendar, is regular calendar year with uh, winter solstice. I thought including those was, uh, it was it was creative, and I'm, I'm glad that they did. I, I liked having those there. I thought it spoke to how very closely connected the verbena feel towards uh, cycles, towards season and, uh, you know, the change of the seasons, the change of years, the change of weather and, and things like that. And so for each a point, you know, each festival through the year, they take different activities and attach it to that because they think it's more appropriate to do those things at that time of year. And so for me, I didn't see that as, wow, these guys are, are so organized or these guys are so, um, you know, well connected to bring each other together and talk. I, I thought of it more as, wow, these guys are really focused and really noticing 
the changes in seasons that go through the average year and and they have it has a real impact on them it's like oh hey it's autumn we ought to be doing this kind of thing because that's what one should do in autumn and oh it's spring this is the sort of thing we should be doing because it's spring and so i, I like to see that it's like hey we are really keyed in to the change of seasons the change of weather etc and uh Everything we do is going to hinge on that. You didn't picture them having a giant shared Google calendar, which they use to coordinate who's going to bring cupcakes to everything, because that, that's immediately <laughs> how I took it. And <laughs> Dictionary.com informs me that it's pronounced uh, Sahuin for Sam Hain, with or without an E, a, a festival of ancient Celts held around November 1st to celebrate the beginning of winter. It, it seemed like some of the seasons were a little bit off, where I feel like at one point they're like, ah, winter is upon us. It is time to plant. I'm like, I would not trust that person as a farmer. Someone is unfamiliar with, with how most Northern European planting works. This is also the part where I get yelled at because someone informs me that, oh, no, tulips have to be planted before the first frost or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Details. Yeah. Details which, for lesser which, men. Which is interesting <laughs> as a point because I was expecting more details on actual what we would call pagan or heathen practices. I feel like this book was heavy on mood and idea and theme, but I was expecting a little more detail on like focuses. And to me, the roads were pretty shallow. Like Merlin's Ride is a, this is how you quickly get from point A to point B. Like... Unless it's super flavorful, I feel like a single sphere effect for a tradition doesn't really need to be there. Like, I get the idea of showing what a correspondence three or four effect would look like in a core book just to give an idea. But the way they have it, I, I thought the, the, the rotes were kind of uninspired. The discussion they had of how they view the spheres was a little bit on the weak side. I was expecting more detail there. Maybe it's a side effect of we have this vague collection of beliefs, so we can't go into too much detail on it. I thought that was kind of on the on the weak side, and there were no there were no talismans. But then again, in in first edition, none of the tradition books really had talismans in it beyond a few vague references. I think, but that that part was kind of light for me. It was a case where I was involved with the narrative. It was a case where I got some obvious character arcs that a new player could jump on. But once they had outlined it and once they had filled in their character sheet, I didn't get a lot of information on, okay, so how do I actually play systematically? Like, what do my tools and implements look like? And I'm not sure where that kind of void came from. But that was pretty well my biggest criticism of it. That and the difficulty of following the narrative. But that's more reflection on me. I'm really bad at following dialogue. <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of things uh, mentioned there. You did mention how in the in the narrative uh, presented in the book, there was a scene uh, towards the end where the uh, elder Verbena had taken their new recruits and decided, okay, uh, we're we're going to put them through this experience to test their loyalty, and, uh, and right after that, uh, to make them awaken. And I had two uh, criticisms of my own with that. Uh, first off, I, I don't. Uh, like this recurring theme through published mage books of always uh, awakening through danger. I, I realize it's dramatic, and in a storyteller, you know, story that you're running with your players, that that dramatic moment can be be really cool. And yeah, people who do that, I totally understand that. But I think in the published books, they lean on it a little too heavy. It's like you almost get the impression that uh, a group of mages is going to pull in some new recruit and it's like, well, hey, let's awaken this guy. Hey, let's pull out guns and like, you know, shoot all around <laughs> him and scare the pants off him. And then he'll awaken. I really enjoyed in the uh, Horizon Stronghold of Hope book, there's a scene where I 
if I remember correctly, it was the Celestial Choristers talking to you know another signature character saying, oh yes, I awakened when I was studying and I realized there's all these different words for something and it just opened like like a flower opening in my mind and I just awakened then. It's like, yeah, I'd like to see more of this, these non-danger connected awakenings. I, I think those are underrepresented in the, the published books. And specifically for the Verbena book, they decide that, okay, we're going to awaken all of our uh, new recruits right now. And I, I, as a storyteller, I would not use that device, uh, awakened mages looking at a recruit and saying, you know what, I think I'm going to make him awaken now, now, yeah, okay, let's do it now. It's like, no, I, I like the idea of this awakening being a, a mystical thing that no one fully understands. And so what you want to do is you want to take a new recruit uh, under your wing and train them and, and watch them and be in tune with them. And you never really know when they're going to awaken. But when it does, you celebrate with them and then you move to the more difficult material to cover. Uh, I like I like that model more. Yeah. I, I mean, I assume they just did the abduction because that's what their giant shared Google calendar said. And they're like, no, we need to pursue them, pull the guns at this particular point. But I, I totally agree that I, the more I think about it, the more problem I have with kind of the notion of how awakening occurs in a lot of the tradition books and it being on schedule or under a time of particular stress. I get that. But one of the problems that you run into is like awakening can't be too mundane. Otherwise, it starts asking the question of, okay, well, if realizing that these three different words that um, gospel and evangel have the same root in Greek versus old English, like why aren't people awakening all the time? And one of the avenues to take that is a case of they just awakened and they are saying in retrospect what they think caused it. Like when someone says, oh, I knew I was really in love when blah, blah, you were probably in love before that or maybe sometime after it. You're just kind of picking this moment for this thing that occurs on a spectrum, maybe. And you just pick an arbitrary point to say, this is the point where I went from unawakened to awakened. I'm a big fan of kind of the slow roll awakened. And we get that in Revised and M20 where they have magical practice groups where they don't necessarily draw a distinction, which kind of suggests that maybe the the line between awakening and not yet being awakened is not as pyrotechnic or not as extreme. But I do like the idea of something called the sieve where they just draw a bunch of guns on people and you have two categories of people. You have those who awaken and those who just like shit themselves. And I could get behind that as as something that can happen in Mage if you take something towards excess. So I, I think I, I agree. I think the, the notion of awakening gets kind of messy and chunky and everyone can kind of choose their way to do it. But the more I read about the uh, awakening under duress, the more I'm like, I, ah. That point you mentioned towards the end, um, I, I think that uh, plays into the, the old expression, it's time to fish or cut bait. I, I'm willing to step off my you know, stated uh, opinion and say, yeah, I can understand a situation, you know, in the fictional world of mage where you've got a group of mages who've taken in possible recruit and they're training him and he's just not awakening. And it's like, okay, it, it's time to either press him and see if this is a guy yeah. who can awaken or discover this is a person who probably will not awaken and we need to help phase him out into something that's more useful for his future life. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the assay from Iteration X, where it's like, okay, we've taught you a bunch of stuff. Let's uh, let's put you in a scenario where you only have 40% survivability and see if you make it out the other side. It seems like the traditions are a little ge little bit gentler to that, which is good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, also, you, you mentioned how uh, uh, the representation of the verbena uh, in this book. Uh, I... 
also was reading through it and, and thinking how I felt like this book avoided the darker side of the verbena, which I think is, is a bit of a shame, but understandable. But I think it was a bit of a shame. I have heard a few podcast interviews with uh, Satiros Bracado in recent years where he has said, uh, hey, uh, people, a lot of Mage fans uh, get too much of a shine on their favorite tradition and, and think too well of them. And he went through a few examples, which I thought were intelligent. When he came to the Verbena, he said, uh, look, uh, these guys have beliefs that line up with what people believed 2,000 or more years ago. And if you really see what people believed thousands of years ago, there would be some things that would either make you really uncomfortable or make you just say, hold on, no, that's wrong. And these, these Rubena, it's like thousands of years later, they hold to these beliefs. And so they're doing some things in their rituals out in the woods in the middle of the night that modern people, reasonable, decent modern people are going to look at and say, no, that's not something I can get behind. And this book kind of shied, shied away with that and shied away from that, I should say. And I can understand. I, I think that especially in the first edition books, tradition books, I think there was a bit of a feeling among all the different authors that, hey, I, I'm writing a source book for, you know, quote unquote, the good guys, and I need to make them look good. I want the mage fans out there to read this book and sort of see how they could identify with this tradition and get behind them and say, yeah, I want to join this group and help them do what they do. And so, but, you know, myself as, as a mage fan, and uh, I guess as, as a older adult now, I like it when they put in the darker side and say, look, these are the problems we have. These are the excesses we can sometimes get into. And these are the things that we really believe. And you you just might not uh, agree with, and we're just going to disagree because we think differently. I think it's okay for some groups to be representative as, hey, we just think differently, and we're just not going get to al get along on this point. And every tradition has their area where they feel they are right, that there is some greater force in the universe. They are following that the will of that force. Ergo, what they do in pursuit of it has to be right of necessity. And mm -hmm. any group that considers themselves to be the preserver of the natural cycle, what's part of the natural cycle? Well, death. death. <laughs> there's, there's blood, there's pain. And uh, the Verbena are the group that say, yeah, that's reality. Could you please face reality? Because we did that years ago and we're waiting for you to catch up. And other people are like, that's not my reality. It's like, yeah, people think differently. Like, like I said uh, in the past, one of the themes of Mage is people who just think differently and they find themselves together. Are they going to get along? And the answer in real life generally seemingly is no. But in Mage, despite it being a world of darkness, cooperation seems to be the uh, the key star. But uh, the the thing that I do find interesting is, one, the book literally never mentions the Nefandi. So in terms of perversion of belief, that never really comes up. And the closest we get to any of the other groups is one place where a character says, one of the things we do is if we ever find an Umbrood or a Bygone that is on this side of the gauntlet, we will send as many apprentices out to kind of protect it until we're able to ferry it away to somewhere else and they explicitly say yeah we kind of look like marauders in that regard interestingly this is before we get the book of madness which actually outlines kind of how the marauders are going to work and how the umbral underground may actually hmm. work but i thought that was a that was an interesting nod but yeah i do feel they they shy away from saying oh by the way these are our excesses yeah i that uh, that point you mentioned about uh, looking like the uh, marauders i noticed that when i was reading through it the second time and and i was thinking yeah i've heard that uh, back in the 90s there was several books in production at the same time, and it was not unheard of for the different authors to, to talk with each other. And so, yeah, there's a mention 
made to a specific passage of book that wasn't published yet. But uh, one of the other things I noticed, this was one of the first edition books that kind of predated the second edition uh, focus on more sleeper issues and less uh, mage sort of secret society issues. And, and what I mean by that is uh, reading through the book, you, a reader can get this impression that verbena mages are very keyed into sleeper society, sleeper history, sleeper concerns, uh, sleeper current events and politics. It seems like verbena are, are 100% following that and, and really concerned with that. And in the early first edition, you get more of this sense that mages have their own society, their own history, their own concerns, and they are less tuned into what the sleepers are concerned about. And um, uh, for me, I, I kind of liked that more first edition tendency, but I just thought it was worth bringing up that this is one of the first edition books that really looked forward to the the, the mood and, and outlook of, of second edition. Now, this tradition book, if I'm correct, this was the first time that mythic threads were given that name and specifically called out. And I like that. I, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, I thought it was appropriate to, that it be mentioned in the Verbena tradition book. And as many mages know, the power of naming is a very strong power indeed. Once you give the name mythic thread to this concept, it is so much more accessible to players and storytellers. And I think it should be. I, I like this idea that the mages of the nine mystic traditions and perhaps some of the disparates are going to have a term for these ideas that are called superstitions or carryovers or outmoded thinking that is from the earliest times of human history that's still around. There are still people in the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century, who believe in the mystic power of crystals or who aren't quite sure if there are fairies or not hiding in the woods and and so many other ideas. I like how the Verbena say, oh, we're going to call these the mythic threads. And we realize that there is this this kind of thinking among the sleepers. And it's natural that it would be there. And it's a good thing. And we're going to encourage this. We're going to look for subtle ways to bring this out into sleeper uh, minds and to continue to put weight behind it and inertia behind it. Uh, I thought that was clever. For the listeners, since you haven't read this book yet, maybe, mythic threads are the idea that there are certain elements of magical practice that have remained part of the collective unconsciousness, that there are special things that, in defiance of strict causality or strict reason, that sleepers believe have influence in the world. So this is anything that is a superstition or anything that is an old wives' tale that anyone puts actual credence to, or even if someone is a little uncomfortable if they pass the 13th floor. The verbena are unique in the fact that they will lean upon these directly, and while every group will have mythic threads, the verbena are somewhat unique for their ability to hone in on them and to actively cultivate them. Whereas the Euthanatos aren't necessarily out there promoting that people realize the concept of Dharma and Karma to make their magic easier, the Verbena are big on, no, 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 we are going to nurture and promote witchcraft, astrology, divination, the specialness of certain times of the year, mythic creatures, because one, this this allows our magic to be more doable, and we also think it enhances uh, the world of sleepers. Now, later on M M20, we get the idea of memetics or memes, and it becomes more of a generally recognized phenomenon that other magical groups do, but in first edition, this is something that the verbena 
can kind of lean on comparative to other groups. And it is interesting because it does give you both, it makes certain exceptional things possible because the verbena are able to arrange something where, oh, we are doing a high ritual, which involves 40 participants in this place of power away from mortals. And suddenly you can have this giant pool of successes where suddenly it is possible for a medium power verbena who's very good, once again, with Google Calendar and scheduling everything to, to create that hurricane out of nowhere. And at the other end of the spectrum, they will have great difficulty practicing their magic when they're in a three-piece suit in the middle of lower Manhattan. So I think it is interesting in that it kind of creates magic that is a little more at the whims of the world around them, but can also heavily reward the prepared mage who is willing to evoke these cultural ideas of how the way, way the world works, even again if someone doesn't actively believe it, but if a person is still a little uncomfortable crossing a black cat or walking under a ladder, that is an opportunity for a verbena to expand their power, and I super like that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it gets back into the idea of coincidental magic and mage, and uh, I think it's a good way to say, hey, if if uh, a verbena wants to do verbena magic, as you said, in, in the middle of Lower Manhattan in broad daylight, you know, just after lunch, then a lot of people are gonna, you know, they're not going to be ready to believe that. They're not gonna be ready to accept it. It's going to stand out as very strange and very obvious. But if you get a group of sleepers together and take them out to a wild place and right at midnight. You, you do something and then something odd happens, a lot of those sleepers would be more accepting of it, uh, less skeptical. They might be concerned by it, but it's easier to make coincidental magic coincidental. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's very intelligent that the Verbena you know, made a term for this, latched onto it and said, look, we are going to consciously make this part of our practice because uh, we are not going to let the world move on, the modern world move on without us. We still have a place here and we're going to make that place stronger. And they talk about how the syndicate has taken a lot of these mythic threads and used them to make money, where if people are vaguely interested in astrology, why yes, our subsidiary that focuses on star charts and sells you a customized velvet one that goes in a leather carrying case for $250 when it costs us $9 to produce will be glad to take your money. And the Verbena are perfectly fine to have that happen, and they feel it's an ultimately a win. Sure, the syndicate gets money, but at the same time, the walls of what are possible gets pushed back. And they mention the consternation that the other conventions have at the practice that the syndicate does. They also mention, though, that there it is possible for a mythic thread to be co-opted, where a symbol or an idea is taken from its original meaning and changed into something else. And this, to me, seems like a great opportunity to be like, oh, this is how a Verbena and an Afandi are going to wind up fighting each other. Not necessarily even a direct battle to see who can, who can kill the other guy, but a literal war over ideas. And I thought that was a, an interesting direction to take it yeah and that's that's the ascension war a high at, at a high level that is the ascension war we've got this idea and we're going to do this with it and another group of majors said aha we can direct this in a different direction and now we're battling over a concept in the minds of the public it's very mage and in a lot of cases that war simply becomes let's shoot all the people that believe the thing that we don't want to have exist but this gives you something radically more subtle which I enjoy and it's interesting that they also mention that the different traditions have their own mythic threads and they refer to Doe and the digital web as mythic threads which I thought was kind of interesting I think this raises an interesting question about meta magic, the degree to which people realize that what they do is magical because everyone else thinks that it is magical. And I feel like this is one of the few cases where that conversation is kind of brought to the front, which I appreciated. Yeah. Uh, now, I did want to talk about uh, 
groups within the verbena and also the seasonal realms, which is, is something that uh, really caught my attention. But before I move on to that, uh, I did want to uh, pause and, and make two points uh, from my own experience as a storyteller. Uh, first off, I have come across a, uh, a tendency that I see uh, oftentimes um, where people feel like they have to be really educated to be a good or a, a real mage storyteller. And uh, mage is a game that touches on a lot of real world history and magical practices, ethnic groups, cultures around the world and all these things. And that's really great. It, it is so uh, fun to see a game where if a storyteller wants to put some extra time into researching a topic, they can add richness to their game. I really love that. But the flip side of that, unfortunately, is there are people who say, well, I never studied philosophy. I never studied history. Oh, the, my player is going to play a verbena. I, I just don't know anything about uh, Wiccan practices or Druidic uh, history or, or any of that stuff. And uh, I just want to speak uh, against that that uh, thinking. I have found in my experience that you do not need to be an expert in so many different topics to be a good mage storyteller. You should not be intimidated. Um, in my own experience, I had a player who wanted to play a verbena in my online game back in the late 90s. And I had cold feet because, uh, you know, myself at that point, it's like, I, I just don't know anything about druids and Wiccan and etc. I'm I don't know if I can be a good storyteller to this player. I, I would hate for him to be disappointed and think he got a raw deal. But I just I just walked into it and I said to the player, look, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm going to wing it. I'm going to feel my way through this and I, I think we can have a fun game. And at the end of the game, it worked out well. It, it, uh, the player thought uh, he, he had opportunity to play his character well. He enjoyed the experience and he was not an expert on Wiccan and he was not you know, the, one of those players who's saying, oh, no, you're doing it wrong. And so we just had a great time. And I felt silly for, for being nervous at the outset. And I just want to say to you, mage fans out there, it, you can add richness to your games when you do your own research, but you don't have to be an expert to be a good mage storyteller. And there was a point related to that that, that Terry brought up uh, as we were preparing for this podcast. I thought it was very intelligent. Uh, Terry, fill us in. Before the podcast, I was talking about how, for me, the two sniff checks I want to do as a storyteller are one, if I'm going to put something on the player, I feel as if my due diligence as a storyteller is to understand enough that I know that the character is simply going beyond stereotypes. I want to know just enough to be like, hey, if you're not going anything deeper than what I got in the first two paragraphs of this Wikipedia article, I, I don't feel as if you're bringing any richness to the table and you're just kind of being lazy or you're using it as an excuse to play up a stereotype. I'm not a huge fan of that at my table. So I, I put that on the player. I, I set my what I consider to be my minimum knowledge threshold, and I kind of depend on the player for everything else. The other thing I do is, as part of this, the two things I want to know are, what are your focuses and what do they look like? And two, what can't your character do? One of the problems where you have a knowledge imbalance between a storyteller and a player is a player will take advantage of that to think, well, they obviously think the virtual adepts or they obviously think the Akashics are capable of doing anything. Why doesn't my storyteller understand how great they are? And one of the fastest ways to me, to rein that in is, give me an example of what your character cannot do within their paradigm. And if they have an internally consistent paradigm, in most cases, there are either things that are exceptionally difficult compared to what other characters do, or are flat out impossible. And I think some of the newer editions of Mage point out that there are certain things that are really hard. For instance, some traditions and some magical practices just have no version of resurrection. The idea of bringing someone back from the dead simply doesn't exist. 
And I would like to know for a given character, what are the things they can't do? And if a player can do both of those things for me, give me their list of focuses and how they're used, give me what they can't do. And I do that quick sniff check to make sure that they're not just hammering on stereotypes and have done some homework. I am fine with someone role-playing a belief system or setup that I am not an expert in. I think that's a mark of a mature storyteller saying, oh, you want to play Verbena? Well, I don't know much about that, but if you know that, I'm, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to let you bring some information into the Chronicle and make that a part of the game, and we can do this together. Uh, the second point I wanted to bring up is is related, uh, a little different. Um, I don't think it's good when storytellers, and especially when, when players pressure their storytellers to get all the details right about this uh, magical group. Right meaning accurately reflect a, a real world magical tradition or a magical you know, cultural group. Um, because in the fictional world of Mage the Ascension, the true mages, those who can use true sphere magic, are uh, to a large degree a hidden group. They are hiding behind these real-world practices, but they don't accurately follow every part of them. Uh, now, the what we call sorcerers or hedge wizards, these are supposed to be the groups in the world of darkness that really adhere strictly to all of these uh, rules and, and cultural practices and, and magical ideas. They cross all the T's and dot all the I's, and they think if they don't get that right, their spell is not going to work or have some horrible mistake. But... Uh, the mages, the ones using true sphere magic, they have a more open mind to magic. They have a better, more foundational understanding of it. And they say that, hey, look, these are some cultural ideas that we've just pushed aside because they're not accurate or they're not necessary. If a hermetic does something that does not match up with real world hermetic magical practice, then the mage would say, oh, that that applies to hedge wizards. I'm a real mage. And that totally, oh. yeah, that totally makes sense where you have those weird rituals. Uh, I, I think the classic one is part of a recipe that involves cutting the top off of a ham and someone trying to figure out, oh, why does this recipe include this? My family's been doing it for three generations. And the person finally goes back to their grandmother and says, why did you, why did you do this? Did it make it particularly juicy? She's like, no, I just had a small oven. So I always cut off the top of the ham so the whole thing would fit. And my, my son picked up on that, thought that was part of it. And he still did that even though he had a much larger oven. Uh, this person, your father, so on and so forth, that these things just kind of accumulate over time, but say the real thing capable, doable by a real mage, as it were, um, would be much more streamlined and much more to the point. And it's it's a case of narrative necessity. If you look at any real world grimoires, as it were, like the Egyptian Book of the Dead, those rituals take 60 people five months. Yeah. And and that was, that was part of the point. Sometimes the goal of a ritual is to occupy people's time or to give a space for contemplation or something like that. And that would be super boring if we decided to be that literal in Mage. And I think one of the storyteller books, it may be the Book of Mirrors, makes mention of that. Why don't you include more quote-unquote real-world magic practices? And they say, because it would be incredibly boring. And I can get behind that as a reason to eschew that. Yeah, and, and I, I just don't like to see when Mage storytellers get nervous and say, oh no, I, I, I had this scene for my players and one of my players called me on how it wasn't accurate Wiccan uh, belief or something. And it's like, look... All you storytellers out there, if no one else has done this for you, then I'm just going to give you license to say, hey, look, the Verbena are true mages, and uh, they don't you know, follow every little detail of, of uh, Wiccan practice. Don't sweat the details, basically. If you don't know everything about uh, hermetic practice or what you might consider the Eastern traditions behind the uh, Akashiyana, the don't worry about it. So if you see me at Gen Con, you ask me for my sticker that says, but Adam said I could mage the podcast. <laughs> okay, I guess I, I, I do sound a little arrogant there. I, I should probably apologize to the listeners. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a perfect reasonable contrivance. If someone is going around a table 
to learn about the minutiae of real world magical practices, they have fundamentally missed it. It's like going to a mage game and wondering why you're not getting like better resistance training out of it. That's not what the game is for. Yeah. You can do that on your own if you want to. And sometimes it's nice, uh, the, the analog of taking out the, the nice silver um, to, to have a very elaborate scene where the characters maybe see one of these rituals or something like that yeah. just so they know it exists. But yeah, we don't. Yeah. When I was a teenager, it's like, oh, I'm going to read all these books and do this really cool scene in my mage game. And it was fun and I loved it. And now I'm in my 40s and it's like, ah, that would be fun, but I don't have time. So yeah, that's how it is. But uh, before we move on to uh, discussing some of the groups within the Verbena, I wanted to uh, do a little shout out. Um, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Anders Sandberg's work uh, back in the 90s. And if you go to uh, Anders Mage page 2.0 and go to the Verbena page, there were two links on there that I, I think are worth pointing out to the listeners. Uh, one is the Asatru, and they are supposed to be a Nordic uh, rune-using uh, group of Verbena that uh, I thought was really cool, and I did not see that in the earlier editions of Mage. And now that we're getting into Mage 20, and I think even Revised Era, we, we see a little more of that brought in. But um, even today, if you go back and read the Asatru page, uh, I think that's uh, something really fun that can be brought into Mage games. And also, there is a shorter piece on sort of an umbrid spirit or some sort of concept in the world of Mage the Ascension called Baphomet, which is something that some Verbena may key into and use in their rituals. I, I thought that was uh, pretty cool to read and uh, just might uh, give you some inspiration for your games. So moving on, uh, talking about the uh, groups or perhaps sects uh, within the Verbena um, as Terry mentioned earlier, this uh, tradition book followed the earlier uh, editions of Mage practice of taking each of the four main essences and attaching a faction uh, within the tradition to that. Uh, in this case, we have the Gardeners of the Tree, and let's see, they were Pattern, uh, Twisters of Fate are Primordial, the Moon Seekers are Questing, and the Life Weavers are Dynamic. And I thought it was uh, pretty cool how they have two of these groups that are real um, traditional, with a lowercase t, old world thinkers who take the practices of thousands of years ago and say, hey, this is very viable, this is, this is true and accurate, and we're going to stick to this. And we also have two groups, the moon seekers and life weavers, who say, uh, no, we're, we like innovation and, and new thinking, and we don't think um, everything from the past is 100% uh, necessary. And so the moon seekers and the life weavers, they tend to get attracted to more uh, what you might call uh, new age groups or, or modern Wiccan groups. They, they pick up those practices and, and get a lot of mileage out of them. And uh, they don't feel like they have to obey every rule from, let's say, 2000 years ago. I have no strong commentary on the groups. <laughs> and I think, I think they had a logical breakdown. You read that and you're like, Yep, that makes total sense. Yeah, not only does um, it make sense to me that these groups would exist and gravitate towards these these basic ideas, but also I, I think they can add richness to a game to to put them into your chronicle. But players should not feel like they have to choose one of these groups and say, I'm a member of this group. It's just not necessary. You don't have to be a member of any of these groups. Yeah, the one part that was interesting to me is they kind of talk about very specifically that these are coherent groups and they, they kind of have ideological battles between the groups as to who thinks it's right, which is useful to give a guide to what are the internal questions that the tradition has. One of them is, is it time to forgive the hermetics? Is it time to figure out, is there something common between the celestial chorus 
and the verbena, which I think is super interesting. Um, and here they have an internal division of how do we balance these modern groups with these historical ones. The only part that struck me as odd is the line where he talks about uh, one old man I know moves from town to town searching out potential verbena and marking them for our first contact people. And that again suggests to me a very organized group, yeah. which was a little bit of a surprise. Yeah. But again, as I mentioned before, it super makes sense that a group that was able to survive the Inquisition would be very good at subtly keeping internal contact within a group as opposed to maybe a more rowdy group where everyone is safe enough on their own that they don't need the protection that unity would provide. Yeah, I, I would give bonus points to the author authors of this book for uh, one uh, old world thinking idea that they consciously brought into this book, and that is the Gardeners of the Tree is a, is a uh, subgroup or a, a sect that uh, really believes in um, the genetic, you could say genetic importance of certain mages. It's like this mage is descended from these people in the past, so they are a more true verbena or a more powerful verbena or worthy of more consideration from us. And then you have groups like the Moon Seekers or the Life Weavers who understandably have a modern point of view and say, hey, that, that's a part of old world thinking that we don't like and we don't think should be continued. We don't think you should look at someone's uh, bloodline or, or line of descent and say that makes them better or more legit or more worthy of respect. That That's old thinking that we think should go away. And you can bring this point of tension uh, into, your, into your chronicles. I thought that was pretty cool. I'd like to talk about the seasonal realm. Uh, I thought this was an idea that was just it just really appealed to me. Uh, hopefully, it'll appeal to the listeners too. But uh, it gets a write up in in this tradition book, and I, I was really pleased to see it. Um, I, I now a lot of listeners know that I, I'm kind of a nut about uh, the Umbra. I really like bringing umbral journeys and ideas and umbrood into uh, discuss discussions of mage. And uh, in this case, we have four horizon realms that are understood as being belonging to the verbena, but they're different from the standard horizon realm we see uh, written up in Book of Chantries or in other mage books. And that difference uh, makes them interesting in my mind. We have uh, four seasonal realms that are each attached to one of the regular seasons. We have winter castle, spring cottage, summer grove, and autumn circle. And the, the story is these horizon realms are not true horizon realms in that the verbena did not actually create them. They discovered them. And so you would think, oh, that doesn't qualify them as horizon realms, that qualifies them as umbral realms. But these are different from the standard umbral realm. When the Verbena discovered them, they found that these umbral realms not only neatly matched their, their thinking, their ideology, their way of doing things, there was not only a strong appeal, but they found that these realms were very congenial to, to their magic. Uh, two or three of them had recognizable world trees, and uh, the Verbena found that their magic clicked really well uh, with these realms, and so they laid claim to them. And the realms have, you know, so far have not done anything to to work against that. And so, uh, it's interesting to me that the Verbena did not declare them umbral chantries and set up shop there. The the Verbena do not live there year-round. They have no strong established presence. They, they sort of hold them lightly. They understand that these, these may, we say that these are ours. We tell the other eight traditions that these are our horizon realms, but we know that there's something else going on here. We don't totally own these. Uh, they give examples in the book of how the Verbena travel there singly or in small groups throughout the year, but they don't stay long. 
They, they look around, they do what they want to do, and then they leave again. No one lives there year-round. And during the different uh, uh, festivals or high points of the, cal- of the Verbena calendar that we discussed earlier, during four of these, they will go to w- one each of the seasonal realms, and they'll have a, a large Verbena gathering there. But they're only there for one to, say, one to three days, and then they leave. They, they don't, like I said, they don't live there year-round. And so they know that there's something a little otherworldly, a little strange about these horizon realms. Uh, we have to hold them gingerly and not rely too heavily on them because they just might surprise us. So I, I thought that was a really cool idea. And in uh, the first Book of Worlds, which came out a little later, they give uh, further uh, expanded write-ups to these four seasonal realms to encourage people to use them in their chronicles. And I certainly would like to do that. I, I think they're really interesting. As you were going through the list in my head as a storyteller, every time you made a claim about the one of the realms, I inserted a for now at the back of it, like <laughs> nothing weird has gone against them yet. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Um, I, I do like the idea of a relatively conservative group who realizes themselves to be, as they consider themselves to be tenders of a garden that is not fundamentally theirs, that in the horizon where they're even less necessarily in their element where the power level is so much higher, they realize at best they are allowed visitors. Mm-hmm. There's a line somewhere later where a Sons of Ether member makes mention of visiting the realm of the Sphinx in the digital web or somewhere in the Umbra, and they say one gets the distinct impression that one is not necessarily a guest and is like a toddler in a dining room and will be immediately shooed away if they move too close to the good china. And I very much got that feeling that if the Verbena ever tried to set up shop there full time, maybe the real denizens of the realm might start saying something. Or alternatively, I like the interpretation of the realms as the embodiment of that in the same way that autochthonia is the embodiment of the idea of computation or, or tool usage, that these are analogs to that. It's interesting to me that the Verbena send uh, like wardens or overseers to the seasonal realms, and their job is to go it there, stay for just maybe two days, and look around and make sure that like nobody else has moved in and taken over. But then we scoot out again because maybe they're not. So I, I like that tension. And it's a good contrast with Duizitap, where it's literally in the Shade Realm of Forces, where people were like, this place is great for magic. Let's build a castle. And I think that's a pretty pretty good contrast, maybe, of yeah. how they view their uh, two ideas of their role in controlling and influencing the world. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I like seeing how uh, different traditions do things differently. Yeah, the Order of Hermes doesn't do things like the Verbena do, and that makes sense. So it's, it's fun to see. Now, before we get into Adam's super plot fun time, did you have any <laughs> other comments or thought? I love your plot ideas. <laughs> It just reminds me that you're like, you're sitting on the can and you bang out like five of these. And I'm like, man, if I get one good story every six months, I consider it a victory. Adam like sneezes and the tissue has like a plot thread on it. Uh, No, uh, to wrap up, uh, I think we we covered the points pretty well. Um, I I would recommend this uh, tradition book to people who are thinking about uh, making Verbena a a part of their chronicle. I think there's some some solid ideas in here. I mean, uh, every book is going to have some shortcomings. We discussed those, but I think it's a solid book and I think it's worth a read. I will totally agree. I am disappointed at how few references to stone lore we get, and I really hope the revised tradition book 
goes back to what I consider to be the true roots of the verbena. I know it's tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I do kind of agree. Stone lore is a really interesting idea, and it's mentioned in the Book of Shadows, and then we get to verbena, it's like, well, yeah, let's talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, I feel like it's entirely appropriate that among the groups who wind up pruning certain ideas that the verbena would be those. Not, not everything makes it, and that was the glory of first edition. We're going to mention 15 things, all of which sound super cool, but seven of them you're actually going to see. Yeah. And I'm I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. Even sometimes just having the name is useful. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I did have a, a few adventure ideas. Uh, this time I've got three that I uh, was hoping to share. Uh, first off, the seasonal realms are changing. Spring Cottage and Summer Grove are overgrown and becoming inaccessible. Winter Castle has become so cold and so stormy that none can visit. And the World Tree of Autumn Circle has turned blood red. And all who visit are filled with dread. The seasonal realms are turning against the Verbena. Something must be done. The characters are sent by the gardeners of the tree to the Umbra to see if they can seek out Lilith and discover how to appease her. Can Lilith be found? If so, how do the characters know it's really her, and what is she going to ask for? Are the players prepared to really deliver? I pictured them finding Lilith, and she just whispers to them, winter is coming, and then boom. (laughs) (laughs) That could be cool, yeah. Uh, second off, the Sisters of Hippolyta, which is a craft or disparate group, which is mentioned in Book of Crafts, which we'll get to pretty soon. The Sisters of Hippolyta have taken a teenage girl that the Twisters of Fate were monitoring. The girl has a great destiny among the Verbena, but the Hippolyta mages believe she is a reincarnated sister. The Verbena don't want to antagonize the sisters, but they must have the girl. The characters are sent to negotiate, if possible, kidnap the girl, if not. The characters should understand well where the beliefs of the two groups overlap and where they differ. Uh, so this could be a, a good opportunity to have a little bit of uh, a politics between different factions of mage. The Sisters of Hippolyta have beliefs that are not the same as the Verbena, but uh, are, are similar in some respects. And so it's natural that the two groups would want to get along, but there are some times where they might strongly disagree on a specific point. And they'll have to deal with the hippolitics of the situation. Ouch! You got me. <laughs> okay, uh, finally, a young cabal of Verbena claims a, they claim a very special bond with the Celtic god Kernunos, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. Apologies. Uh, they summon his aspect to create explosive plant growth inside technocratic strongholds, which shut down those strongholds. Now, these attacks are killing sleepers and will soon cause a paradox disaster. Can the characters convince this cabal to truly respect the deity and stop causing catastrophes before it's too late? And why are the Verbena leaders staying so quiet during this whole thing? So those are three ideas I I will offer to the listeners. Hopefully you can uh, use those to make some ideas of your own. And I think that covers the material that I wanted to discuss this episode. My only note is I've listened to a bunch of your plot threads, and one of the the recurring themes that I super like is when someone who should know better and probably does know what's going on keeps their mouth shut. And the utter amount of terror that could inspire in characters when suddenly the master who knows everything isn't saying anything is just like pants crappingly strong. And I I love it every time you mention it. Yeah, yeah, this can make for some good scenes. But uh, also, I remember there being some discussion in the first two editions of Mage of people worrying about these uh, older, more powerful mages pushing around player characters. And I know that Revised had their solution for it, which they wrote right into the setting material. I'm not going to go into that now. But uh, 
I think uh, it, it's it's interesting when you have a group of players who expect the masters to speak up and settle the issue, and instead they just they not only do they not say anything, but they refuse to say anything, and the players are like, oh gosh, it's on us now. What are we going to do? What do we think about this? And uh, I think this is a good time to let you know that you can contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think. Uh, do you have any ideas for future episodes? Do you have any criticisms? I say wincingly. <laughs> or do you just have uh, <laughs> anything that you'd just like us to know? We'd like to know uh, what our listeners are thinking about. And uh, comments or feedback are always welcome. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn. And uh, also, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, then uh, uh, why not give us a, a review to let people know what you think about uh, our podcast? And that helps our visibility in uh, searches that other people will run in the future. So that always helps us out. And this episode of the Mage the Podcast was executively produced by Richard Bat Brewster and Ira Grace. If you'd like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show notes at magethepodcast.com where you can listen to every past episode that you would like to. So thanks again for tuning in. And for Mage the Podcast, this is Adam Simpson saying truth until paradox, baby. And this is Terry Robinson saying bye.